Hey, Georgiana. Hi. Hey, hey, can you hear me? Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Or if this is your first time, welcome to the Jew Auto Know podcast. Uh, today, I am deviating a bit from our current stroll through modern Israeli history to try a new Jew Auto Know format, an interview. I had the opportunity to interview two very interesting women about a book they've written. It's a book called To Look a Nazi in the Eye. It's a compelling account that raises all kinds of moral questions about history and justice and values. And it was also just a very personal, very easy to read, really wonderful story. I recorded an interview with the authors a few days ago. You'll hear it here. And that's our topic for today. So enjoy. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So this book, To Look a Nazi in the Eye, is a story about Jornada Olibowitz, a Canadian college student who you heard just a minute ago on the phone, at 19 years old in 2015, heard about this trial that was about to start in Germany. Oscar Groening, now 96 years old, was an SS officer stationed at Auschwitz. It was his job to organize and handle and keep track of the property and money and belongings of the Jews coming out of the rail cars at Auschwitz to be murdered in the gas chambers in a few short minutes. The press calls him the bookkeeper of Auschwitz. The trial wasn't about whether or not he was an SS officer at Auschwitz. He didn't deny any of it. Instead, the trial was about his guilt as an accessory to the murder of 300,000 people, though he himself was a junior officer and never directly killed anyone or ordered any killings. Jordana was determined to attend this trial. She convinced her family to allow her to fly to Germany and, through a lot of chutzpah, got herself attached as an observer to the team of lawyers and Holocaust survivors who were going to prosecute this case and offer testimony. Kathy Kaser, an author and the daughter of Holocaust survivors, heard about Jordana's efforts and wrote this book to look a Nazi in the eye as an account of Jordana's experience. So I had a wonderful discussion with them the other day I was planning to cut down the interview into my usual like 20 minute episode, but I so enjoyed talking with them and they had such interesting things to say that I've actually only lightly edited our conversation so you can hear the whole thing. So one note, uh, this is a new experience for Jew I don't know and so my technological skills weren't quite up to the task of recording a clear three-way phone conversation. So I apologize in advance for some voice distortions and other audio quality shortcomings. Uh, but still, I hope you enjoy this interview with the authors of To Look a Nazi in the Eye, and away we go. Hello? Hey, Georgiana. Hi. Hey, hey, can you hear me? I can, I can. Can you hear me? Great. Yes, it's Jason from the Jew I Don't Know podcast. Um, now that I have you, we need to call Kathy. Are we all here? Hello? Kathy's here? Hello. Hello? Can we... Yes. Yeah, I can hear everyone. Wow. Okay. Amazing. Great. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm delighted to have you guys on this morning. Thank you so much. This is really, it, this is so cool. I, I read this book. It was such an interesting project and such a fascinating experience. I really, like, I don't think I've ever read, um, uh, 
you know, an account of somebody who like went and witnessed a Nazi trial in person and certainly not recently. So this was interesting. So, so Jordana, um, why yeah. it seemed like this idea just jumped into your head and wouldn't let go to, to go to this trial. Like you felt you had to go. Why are you so compelled to attend? Like what, what was it? Tell, like, tell us like, why, why are you so compelled to attend this trial? Um, I was very compelled to attend this trial. I had heard about previous um, historical Nazi trials, such as like the Nuremberg trial, the Eichmann trial, um, and they all made history. It was, uh, and, and in addition to the fact that they were uh, interesting and, and engaging, obviously, it's important for future generations to have these accounts because Holocaust denial is, um, you know, coming up more and more and happening all around us, all over the world. And the only thing that can combat it is people saying it happened because I was there or I saw, I, I heard from a survivor or I heard from a Nazi. And when these courts have it in writing, uh, it's extremely important to combat Holocaust denial. So I thought that being there would not only, you know, give me a much broader and uh, more in-depth understanding of the Holocaust, but it would also give me the tools to be able to combat Holocaust denial um, and teach about the Holocaust in the future so that we can make sure it doesn't happen again. So uh, that's why I wanted to be there. Yeah, great, great. And and so, Kathy, on your end, how did you come to this story? And and what was it about Jordana's story that really compelled you to, like, to, to write a whole book about it? Right. Well, uh, with many people around the world, I had been following the trial of Oscar Grinig. Uh, you know, at the time, the headline said he could possibly be one of the last Nazi war criminals to stand trial in Germany for his crimes during uh, the Holocaust, his crimes in Auschwitz. And um, I had written many books uh, about the Holocaust and wanted to write about this one. But I was kind of struggling to find a way into the story that I thought would be uh, compelling, more than just a telling of the trial itself and a recounting of the survivors who were going to testify there. And then, mm -hmm. quite honestly, I read an article about Jordana in a local newspaper. This young 19-year-old budding activist who had decided to travel to Germany on her own to be an observer at this trial. And I thought immediately that that was the, the lens through which I could tell the story in the most compelling way. And so I simply contacted her. I always say that Facebook is a wonderful thing. <laughs> and found her. <laughs> and, uh, I wasn't out. sure if it was legitimate or not. Jordana <laughs> was a little cautious at first. <laughs> uh, it turned out she had read some of my other books when she was younger. I asked her if she was willing to meet with me and talk about this experience. And uh, as soon as I met her and heard her side of the story, I knew that this was the perfect way in which to talk about the trial, to tell the story of the trial. And so Jordana and I began to meet on a pretty regular basis uh, as the details of her journey unfolded. Yeah, it's so, it's just so um, serendipitous. I mean, what a great, 
what a great way to to like look at this experience and to cover uh, and to cover this trial. And uh, one thing that was that was interesting, like right away in, in the beginning, Jordana was Kathy wrote about you just very early in the book as you were just starting to think about wanting to attend this trial. That fear was a factor in your life that you always had a lot of anxiety about new adventures and things like that. So what about the possibility of this experience of seeing this trial was really scary to you? Oh, well, I mean, traveling across the world by myself um, was a bit nerve-wracking. Um, so I think this was the first time, this was actually the first time that I had ever traveled by myself without a program or a group or a tour, um, just me getting on a plane by myself and getting off on the other end and, and being there, you know, yeah. doing my own thing. So that was nerve-wracking. In addition to that, what I was going for was nerve-wracking. I mean, um, I was nervous to go back to Germany, uh, back to Germany, as in my, you know, where, our, where you know, a lot of our uh, ancestors are from. Uh, my grandmother made it very clear that she didn't want me going back to Germany. Um, she, you know, some, a lot of survivors are very uh, nervous to go back to this place that really, uh, you know, really messed up their lives in a, in a, in a lot of ways and, and it was uh, very, very terrible to them at the time. Uh, so I was nervous about that. I was nervous about seeing a Nazi uh, in person, someone who was there at the camps and what he would say and what he would look like. Um, I was nervous for the survivors of how they would react uh, to seeing him there and to actually testifying against him and telling their stories to him. And then I was nervous to be there with them because um, I thought that, well, I was nervous that maybe they wouldn't want me there, that they would feel that I was an outsider intruding uh, on this most difficult time for them. So I was nervous about a lot of things yeah. going in to this trial. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I knew I had to be there. I just felt that this was this was where I needed to be uh, in order to really be a part of history and, and help build the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you make, there's a whole account in the book of this like heroic effort that you make to attend this trial and uh, how you got yourself attached to the, to the, uh, uh, the lawyers and the Holocaust survivors who, who were going to be there. And there's all this buildup and all this emotion with you and your family and your friends. And finally you get to this foreign place, Germany, and you walk into the trial and a few minutes later, there he is, you know, this old man who was at the train platform in Auschwitz, a Nazi and SS officer, the place where tens of thousands of Jews were murdered. How did you feel when you saw him walk in? Oh my gosh, it was completely overwhelming. The whole scene in the courtroom was overwhelming. There were so many people there, all different types of people. There were lawyers and judges and students <laughs> and uh, professors and and, uh, you know, then there were the, the children of Nazis and the grandchildren of, of former Nazis and such um, all in this room together. There were Holocaust deniers and people that were supporting and protesters outside. Um, and I saw this, this man and I was shocked, actually. I, I don't know. I guess I naively suspected a Nazi to come into a courtroom looking like a Nazi. You know, when you watch the Nuremberg trials, right. people were young people. I mean, they had just done 
these acts a, a couple years before. And this man walking in, you know, was hunched over, leaning over his walker. He was wearing a sweater vest. His hair was completely white. He could barely move. And he sits there, and I'm staring at him thinking, like, oh, my gosh, this is, this guy was once a Nazi. And, and then I was shocked. I was also, I felt pity for him um, being such an old man, and which I did not expect to feel. And in addition to that, I think I felt anger towards him, thinking, how did you get to live to be 94 years old um, when, when all these people that you saw and that you, that you helped um, in the extermination of are, are no longer here? So it was a whole mixture of feelings. I also felt the need to, to go up to him. Uh, then I felt the need to you know, stay away from him. Uh, it was it was very overwhelming and very emotional on all fronts. Um, so that's sort of how I felt that very first moment when he came in. Yeah, yeah. And did it did it over time? Did you? I mean, over time, you know, it was only a few days. But did you get used to seeing him? Was it like after a while, it was like, oh yeah, you know, it's that those feelings have passed and they've. That's actually a great question. Um, Yes, I think it got a little bit less novel, um, and also it was it was a regular. I mean, it was a court proceeding, so it was very legal. It was the the proceedings were very were legal and also totally emotional all at the same time. So yeah. some parts, um, you know, were were a bit more boring and technical, and other parts were, you know, you felt like you were there on the ramp when when this was all happening. So during the parts where it was more legal, I, you know, I was, I was more used to it. I was listening. I was, you know, trying to analyze the situation like the judges were. Um, and then during the emotional parts, it hit me all over again where I was and, and the, um, the tremendous significance of sitting where I was in this courtroom. And, and uh, so at those moments, it, it never became, uh, it, I never got used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, Kathy, why was this trial so unprecedented? I mean, Nazis have been put on trial before, but this time it was considered different in terms of the right. legal questions and the moral questions. Right, right. So, and of course, that was the other thing that I really wanted to explore in this book, and that was the whole issue of complicity. So, Os uh, yeah. Grunig uh, stated, and, and, you know, I think the facts confirm this, that he had never directly killed anyone in Auschwitz. He hadn't <laughs> shot anyone. He hadn't dropped pellets of gas. He hadn't pulled right. a hangman's lever. Um, and so the issue of what degree of responsibility he had, therefore, was a huge question that was being addressed here. And it was the first time that that uh, someone like him, who had not directly murdered anyone, was uh, being held up in court and was presumed to be as responsible as those who had directly murdered individuals. And it was all based on a, a new law that had been enacted uh, in the books, which I talk about into Look a Nazi in the Eye, which describes how those laws were slowly being chipped away at in Germany so that someone like Oskar Grunig could be brought to trial. So ultimately, and this is no, you know, it's not a spoiler alert because right. the outcome of the trial is well known, um, he was found to be complicit in the murder of 300,000 Jews in Auschwitz. 
Uh, and that statement that anyone who worked in the death camp, no matter what your role, no matter whether or not you had directly murdered anyone, the fact that you were part of the killing machine, the killing factory that was known as Auschwitz, was enough to hold you responsible for the outcome of Auschwitz, which was the murder of Jews. And that whole line of reasoning was new in the German court system, and I really wanted to uh, address that in this story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was so interesting where you, in the, in the book, you kind of here and there include his testimony, which uh, it's just really interesting to read right. his testimony and to hear what he had to say. And I know that Jordana really wrestled with a lot of the stuff that he said. Um, for one, for, you know, just to quote one thing where he testified really directly about his feelings for the Jews at the time, you know, when he was, you know, 20, 21 years old. And he said, we were convinced that we'd been betrayed by the entire world and that there was a great conspiracy of the Jews against us. I don't know anyone at the time who didn't think like me. The Jews were the enemy of Germany. That was simply the atmosphere of the time. The propaganda had such an effect on us that we assumed that to exterminate them was basically something that happened in war. And to that extent, a feeling of sympathy or empathy didn't come up. Which is, you know, so here he is, it's 70 years later, he's reflecting back on a time when he was very young and very impressionable and his entire life had been raised being told exactly one thing about the Jews. He was very open in his testimony that he considered himself morally guilty for his role in the process. Um, do you, did you have any, either of you have any, I hate to say sympathy or empathy or something for this position to say, well, can we really fault him for this short life journey that he, that had led him to Auschwitz in which he really wasn't in a position of making many decisions and he was just, he was there. you have to remember that he volunteered for the Waffen SS, which was the elite right. group of the, you know, within the Nazi movement. So he loved, you know, he talked about how he loved the look of the uniform. He loved the uh, idea of being in this top elite group. So he certainly had um, choice in, in where he went within the Nazi system. There's no question that he was a product of that upbringing and that propaganda and that, um, you know, molding to be a good Nazi, as were many uh, in Germany at that time. But we can't say, we can't therefore excuse him for the outcome of all of this. We can't say, therefore, he's not responsible for the murder of 300,000 Jews, because, of course, he does bear responsibility, even if he was somehow brought into this system in a way that, you know, he, he had little choice about. So I think the issue of, um, you know, how, how young German people were being um, cultivated to be part of the system mm -hmm. is an important one to talk about. And at the same time, I still think we cannot forget responsibility in the outcome. And he had a lot of that responsibility. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with with Kathy. Uh, I think you know I didn't I didn't really feel bad for him um, 
in that I didn't really have sympathy for him in that way. Um, I think, you know, even though he said uh, we believed that what we were doing was right, he still had issues with it because he would talk about how he would be partying and drinking vodka all night in Auschwitz. Right. To sort of, you know, forget what he was doing during the day. So, I mean, even though he, he's, felt it was right based on the, you know, ideologies and, and the messages going around at the time, there was still a part of him that was thinking, oh, my God, we're killing human beings here in the most terrible way, um, and he wasn't even okay with that. But really, I think the message that I took from, from this the most, this specific part, uh, was that we have a tendency, uh, you know, to not question authority very much uh, when we believe that, that what they're doing is right. And instead of really thinking for ourselves, we just sort of listen to what, what the person on top is saying. Um, and, and anybody has this potential inside them to do uh, very bad things and also very good things. Because at the same time, when these messages were swirling around, um, and people were hating Jews, there were people who saved Jews, right? Right. Uh, so if, if everyone, you know, if, if, if there was no choice in the matter, then we wouldn't have the righteous Gentiles who saved people. So he did very much make a choice, like Kathy said, to be a part of the SS and to not, uh, you know, save people like, like others did at the time. So, uh, yeah, I agree with Kathy. It's, yeah. We need to take responsibility for our actions no matter how young we are and uh, no matter what's going on around us. Yeah. I, th I think I just add one more thing, um, yeah. which, which I also talk about in the book, is that um, the survivors, and of course they come with a particular lens, for sure, but uh, if you ask the survivors who I wrote about, uh, they thought about his apology or his somewhat limited apology, they were, they didn't believe him. They didn't yeah. believe Jordana may have had a different view, but they didn't believe uh, that he was being sincere. They didn't believe that, um, I don't know how anyone can truly apologize for something of that normity, but they didn't feel his sincerity. They didn't believe that what he was saying uh, really resonated. And, and uh, you know, clearly the court believed in his culpability despite the fact that he was apologizing. Yeah, and that, you know, that brings up, uh, you know, one of the really beautiful aspects of this story is the relationship, Jordana, that you developed with these Holocaust survivors that ended up becoming friends and that you kept uh, really close in touch with. I'm actually one for coffee today. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, which I'm one? i one, one of the survivors for coffee in a couple hours. <laughs> oh, wow, that's terrific. That's Want terrific. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but what, what was interesting was during the trial, I mean, you were wrestling a little bit, or maybe a lot, with reconciling how you felt about Grenning, and did I pronounce that right, by the way? It's Grenning? Oscar Grenning? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, and you're, you were wrestling with how you felt about him, and how you felt about your loyalty to the survivors who were giving this really incredible testimony, I mean, this heartbreaking testimony. Um Kathy wrote about you that she, you, believed that in his old age he was hurting and he was trying to make up for having been part of that killing machine. Jordana thought he meant it when he had apologized, yet she still couldn't bring herself to say this to the survivors who were so adamant about his deceit. So did you, I mean, did you ever say anything to the survivors? Have you ever had that conversation? Like, how did you reconcile those feelings? 
So, yeah, so survivors, I mean, I, I was staying with the survivors in the hotel um, every night. We were going to dinner together every day uh, after quarter to max. Uh, one of the survivors and I would go get beer together. So, obviously, and, and I really felt that in addition to being a witness at the trial, my role was to help the survivors get through this extremely difficult and emotional time. I've, I had never seen, and I had met these survivors before on the March for Living, which is also a difficult trip when they go back to Poland, they visit the concentration camp. Right. But here they were, they were struggling very, very much in this, uh, with where we were. Um, so I, I definitely felt a loyalty to them and to be there for them and support them. Um, but when I was sitting in that courtroom and I heard him apologize, I mean, in all of the Nazi trials that I have watched uh, online, on YouTube, on TV, I've never heard um, I, I, a Nazi on trial admit uh, to their moral culpability yeah. and, and ask for forgiveness. Yeah, it's uh, extraordinary. Like, like this man here. So it could have been a plot to, um, you know, to gain sympathy from the judges, but no other Nazi did that ever uh, in the past. So I really believe that that he meant it, and, and, and it sounded like he meant it in court. And then I went back to the hotel, um, well, I mean, not, not even before I got to ask the survivors, all of the news, all the press was asking the survivors. They were saying, you know, do you believe him, do you believe him? And, and each of them said, no, we don't believe him. Um, and that was hard for me. So on one hand, I wanted to believe them because they're my, her my heroes, my role models. And on the other hand, I, I really felt inside that, that he was sincere in that. Again, not that I felt that made a difference, right? We talked about that before. I don't think it made a difference if he felt that or not in his, um, you know, in his guiltiness. Um, but but it, it was a hard place for me to be in. Um, and at the end of the day, I, I think I, I concluded that they're coming from a very different place than I am. And, and each of our, I'm psychology, each of our perspectives um, and our history shape how we see the world. So for them, they really, they didn't believe him. They saw him, they placed him in Auschwitz um, right. with all the other guards that they met there. And how could any of those cruel, cruel human beings feel bad about what they did? Because they didn't feel bad then and they didn't help them then. Right. For me as a student, you know, 75 years later, um, I was in a very different place and, and I didn't, I couldn't place him like that in Auschwitz. So I had a different perspective. Um, at the end of the day, what's most important is that, is that I think he's still guilty legally and so did the judges. But uh, that was a difficult place for me to be in. Yeah. And it did not yeah. hurt my relationship with the survivors. Right. <laughs> I didn't tell them actually how I felt. Um, I never told them. Wow. It's interesting. Uh, Jordan and I were both at a conference. Jordan and I were both at a, at a conference this past week, and two of the three survivors that I write about were speaking at this conference. And the trial came up in the process of some questions, and both of these two remained as adamantly fixed in the place where they did not believe his um, apology at all. In fact, they've probably become even more adamant about not believing him as time has gone by. And, you know, I think we have no right really to challenge that. As as Jordana said, they come with a, a, a view and an experience and a, and a history that as much as we try to understand, we will never fully understand how they endured, what they endured, and how they managed to survive. So their, right. their, uh, their, 
adamant statements about his absolute guilt and not believing his innocence are, are just what they are. And, and I think we, we just have to accept that. Right. Right. So, and, and as you mentioned before, I mean, the trial ended with a guilty verdict. Um, the prosecution had originally asked for a five-year jail sentence given his advanced age. The court sentenced him to four, I think. Was jail the right outcome? Some of the survivors weren't, didn't think so. Yeah, so, so the survivors, interestingly enough, none of them really um, wanted it's not that they wanted prison time or not. They couldn't care less whether he went to prison or right, not. Right. And they didn't really see the sense of sending this, um, you know, 94, 95-year-old man to jail. Uh, what they wanted was that statement on record that anybody who worked in Auschwitz was responsible for the outcome of Auschwitz, no matter what your role within the death camp. And that's what they got, that statement on record. And that's what was most important to him, uh, to them. Um, interestingly enough, the, uh, his, his uh, conviction was held up on appeal. Nobody thinks he will go to jail, although right. we have read recent articles that say he actually is fit to go to prison. He's now 96. Right. Uh, I, still don't, I still don't believe he's actually going to go to jail. Uh, but that's what the recent reports have said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really interesting. So for, for me, it wasn't yeah. so much about the verdict. Um, it was about uh, the survivors being able to testify, um, and and then getting what the Nazi was saying on record. It was in the courtroom. I met a Holocaust denier, um, and he he said to me, "Oh, the gas chambers weren't for killing people; they were only for delousing clothing." Right. And then we're sitting in court, and literally an hour later, the Nazi, you know, groaning says, I saw the gassing of people, and I saw the after, you know, I saw their bodies uh, dead and entangled and, and, and blue. And, you know, so that was very important to me, was, uh, was the, the, the survivors being able to testify, the Nazi testifying. Uh, that was the most important part to me. Yeah, getting, getting that all out there. So, you know, you had this experience mm -hmm. very similar to just about everyone Jewish I know who has ever traveled to Germany for the first time, including myself. You know, we as Jews, we grew up, you know, especially those of us with um, who are close to Holocaust survivors, my grandparents are survivors. We have we grew up with this very strong image of Germany. And the first time we go there, there's like a lot of anxiety or um, expectation or curiosity about what it's going to be like there, what the people are going to be like, how's it going to feel when we hear German being spoken. So how is how is the experience of Germany for you? I mean, did anything change in terms of how you felt? Yes, totally. Actually, uh, I, I mean, I do that in the book. It's in the beginning. Uh, my my grandmother made it very clear. Uh, I think my whole family really did not want me to go back to Germany, um, and I did feel this uh, this anxiety and this. I have this perception that Germany would be the same as it was. Um, Last, and I think that's that's been passed on from from the generation that lived through it. Um, when I got there, however, even before I got there, I was on the plane uh, from Paris to I had a stopover in Paris, so I was on the plane from Paris to Germany. Um, and this man came up. He was a was a young German man. And, I remember and the first second I looked at him, I felt this like hatred towards him, like this innate feeling of oh my god, like what is 
what did your grandparents do to mine? Um, and when we started talking, he asked me, you know, what, what are you doing coming to Germany? Like, what, what are you here for? I told him about the trial. Um, and right away he said, wow, like, that's so amazing. I believe these people need to be put on trial. And I know so much about the Holocaust and I've volunteered in all these different organizations. And I went to Israel and I volunteered with Holocaust survivors. Um, and then I felt silly for feeling like this man was, was, you know, the same perpetrator who, who, you know, slaughtered my, my ancestors. Um, and the whole time I was in Germany, I was meeting people like that, people in court uh, who were very much there to support the survivors, uh, people in Berlin, people in Hamburg uh, who were, um, who knew so much about the Holocaust. And Germany is the only country, I think, where swastikas are illegal and anti-Semitism is illegal, um, mm. and they're very big supporters of Israel. So... Uh, my, my perspective changed drastically, and I'm very, uh, very proud of, of the country that they've become um, and that they've owned up to their mistakes and to their uh, terrible history as they have. Uh, in the center of Berlin, literally, they took an entire city block right in the center of their, of their capital city and made it into a yeah. Holocaust monument. Yeah. When, you, when you go to England, uh, to London, you don't see, <laughs> you don't see you know, a, an entire block, you know, dedicated to their history or, or, or America or anyone else's, you know. So that was, uh, that was my uh, conclusion on, on Germany and yeah. their people, and it, it was uh, comforting. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm also the child of Holocaust survivors, so I also come to this history from a, you know, a deeply personal place. I actually did a tour to my first a book tour to Germany was in the year 2000, and I went with all the same trepidation that you allude to, and that Jordana talked about. My my father, who had passed away, would have you know rolled over to think that I was actually traveling to that place that he right. had run from. So, you know, with, with such joy, running away, um, and and. Um, I actually found, and this was back in 2000, I actually I spoke to hundreds and hundreds of young people and found uh, the same kind of openness and, and uh, empathy. And I actually found that, you know, German young people know far more about the Holocaust than most North American kids that I speak to. Uh, I speak to a lot of schools and libraries. And so, uh, and I'm going back to Germany this uh, spring. So, um, yes, it is. It, all those things that Jordana talks about are so important for us to, to know now and to remember, you know, and, and rely on the allies that we have in the world. They are precious. Yeah. And, uh, and we need to acknowledge them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, Jordana, you are young. You're in your early 20s, I believe. Um, Oscar Grenig, yeah, Oscar Grenig, and uh, is really old. The survivors are really old. There's gonna come a time, and this is sorry, I apologize because it's like gonna sound really dark, but um, there's gonna come a time when you're gonna be old, and one of the, I mean, really one of the last people alive in the world who has ever encountered a Nazi face to face, and for that matter, a Holocaust survivor face to face. Does that feel like, like, like what? Is that a, a gift, a burden? Like, what is that? 
Oh my gosh, the way you just put it there, maybe like, wow. I'm, I'm I told it was a little dark. I put Maybe, maybe I'll get in the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> um, is that a gift or a burden? Or something it's, else. It's neither. It's, it's reality. You know, it's, it's reality. This is what happened, and, and we can't run away from it. Um, and we have to do our part in, uh, in you know, making sure that uh, that doesn't happen again. If I don't... I don't really see it as something that I, I have a choice in. I see it as some, like a responsibility uh, for me. Yeah. You know, we, we, grapple with, <laughs> we grapple with this one a lot because we know that the survivors are aging. They are not, you know, many of them are dying, sadly, and they will not be here for that much longer to represent this history. I'm not that young, but as a second generation, trying to uh, preserve as many of these po the stories as possible. And thank goodness for someone like Jordana with her yeah. youth and exuberance and passion. Thank goodness for someone like her who is kind of taking up that mantle of remembrance and doing it in such a, a wholehearted, incredible way. She is a voice of this history for her generation and generations to come. So we need more Jordanas who are willing to do what she has been doing. You know, I, we don't even know where Jordana's life is going to take her, but I know. I don't know where Jordana. <laughs> but what I do know is that this will be an this will be an important part of it, and and I'm I'm so grateful for that on a on a daily basis. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful for you, Kathy. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a, it's, we have a mutual admiration society, Jordana and I. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful partnership that has produced this really uh, compelling story. So, I guess that is the a question then for you, Jordana, which is, where are you now? What are you doing now? What's what's going to be next for you? Uh, so, a couple of nights ago, I spoke at the United Nations uh, for wow. International Holocaust Remembrance Day um, on behalf of the March of the Living. That was wow. uh, the most surreal and amazing opportunity to literally stand within the walls of the institution that was founded uh, in response to the Holocaust. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed in response to the Holocaust. The term genocide and crimes against humanity uh, was literally in response to the Holocaust. So uh, standing there and speaking about the Holocaust was uh, was, was a gift, truly a, truly a gift. Um, I am. Uh, I take. I try and take every opportunity I can to learn about the Holocaust um, and how it affects us today, and to teach about it and how it affects us today. I feel that if you teach it as as a history, the new generation will not take it on um, and and connect to it in the same way. Yeah. I try and teach it as as a contempt as. As something that we need in our society today in order to build a better future. Uh, so very much a part of today's world, not a part of history. 
Um, and I've done a few things, uh, like I've interned uh, in different Holocaust institutions in LA and Australia um, and in Montreal. And I uh, built um, an interactive exhibit inside of a replica cattle car, which I saw had such an impact on the students that went through being in the same physical space as, as the victims of the Holocaust helped them connect to the history on an emotional um, and also a physical level. So right now I'm trying to turn that idea into a nonprofit organization that will go around to different schools um, and university campuses and community centers and, and teach the new generation uh, how to connect to this story and, and how to take it forward. Um, so that's my, my most recent project. Um, and I just want to learn more and teach more. Wow. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Um, and, and so what's so what, that's a lot. So what's next with the book now? I, Kathy, like when is I'll it? Hopefully relax at some point also. Is it, yeah, yeah. What's next with the book? Yeah, um, what's that? Is it coming out? Is it, how do you hope this book is used or read or where is it going to be? Yeah. So Jordana and I are actually going to uh, Los Angeles uh, this weekend. We are doing a whole series of talks next week uh, in L.A. Oh, cool. uh, it's a sort of joint sponsorship between the Berber Community Center in L.A. and the Canadian Consulate in L.A. and our publisher, Second Story Press. So we're delighted to spread the word. We have already spoken in other uh, cities. We were in Houston. We were in uh, Detroit, in Toledo. So uh, we are open to going anywhere to talking about uh, this book. Hope we can continue to spread the word in, uh, among groups and continue to talk about this important history. Jordana is an incredible spokesperson, as you already know, yeah. uh, for this history, particularly with young people. I, I've just seen when we speak in, you know, we speak in front of adult audiences, but when we speak to young people, they just, you know, glom onto her and every word she <laughs> says, she is such a powerful voice for her generation. So that's what we'll continue to do, uh, talk about this book as much as possible and hope the word about it gets gets out there. I hope that we can get you to come out to San Francisco. Um, and uh, I have some ideas yes. percolating in my head already. So, um, yes, we would love that. Yeah. So, we would uh, definitely love that. Yeah. So, all right, we'll, we'll follow up, you know, off the technology uh, at some point. And um, yeah, thank you both so much for okay. coming on this podcast. I, I really appreciate you sharing this story with me and uh, with everyone who's listening. It's I, I could really feel like I want to keep going for hours, but um, you know, can't. So oh. <laughs> um, thank you guys. Okay. Thank you so much for the work A real you pleasure. do as well. Yeah, of course. All right, we'll be thank in touch. for the work that you do um, yeah. and for helping us spread the message. Of course. Thank you. All right, see you guys. Okay, well, audio glitches aside, I really enjoyed talking with Jordana and Kathy. I hope they gave you a lot to think about. It's really is this very compelling story with all these different narratives coming together in this one courtroom in Germany. There's the narrative of Jordana's personal journey, the survivor's experiences during the Holocaust, the lawyer trying the case, the judge presiding, and of course, in the middle of it, the testimony and this character of this Nazi SS officer 
Oscar Greening. As Kathy mentioned, he was found guilty in July 2015 of accessory to the murder of 300,000 Hungarian Jews in Auschwitz. His appeals since have been denied. Just a couple of weeks ago, on January 15th, 2018, he requested a pardon as a last-ditch effort. It was denied. You can find Kathy and Jordana's book, To Look a Nazi in the Eye. It's out and about. I saw it, of course, on Amazon, though perhaps you can find it at a local bookstore as well. Next episode, speaking of Nazis... Actually, no, we are not nearly up to the Nazi era yet in our history of modern Israel. We are back to talking about the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and how the post-World War I situation landed Britain in control of Palestine and how that caused a lot of problems that still last today in the form of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Tune in then. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>